Welcome to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. In every episode, we'll bring our big English teacher energy, discussing the modern literary landscape in context with the classics. Along the way, we'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing The Garden of Forking Paths by Jorge Luis Borges. Chelsea, happy short story club day. Yay! Short story <laughs> club. Um, we love these episodes. I I don't know. I just I love getting my my pens out, doing some annotating and knowing that we're going to get to dig deeper into a text than we normally do. It's so fun. Yeah, I I read this yesterday. And I had a lot of fun. I read it once, just like a quick read through. And then I looked up a few things and just basically read the Wikipedia pages, (laughs) which is an underrated way of engaging with the classics. Just so you know, you can use Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I read it again with like my pen and highlighter and marked it all up. And it was just really fun to sit and do that. Oh, nice. I'm excited to hear what you learned because I looked up nothing. So nice. Yeah. I, um, I really, I loved diving into this story. I've been so excited to read this for, for years. I don't know why I just didn't. It's short. It's the printed PDF is eight pages. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I wanted to kind of look up some, I don't know, interpretations and background, but time got away from me and now I have you, so I don't have to. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I really just looked at the plot summary to make sure I wasn't missing things because there's a lot going on Mm -hmm. and looked up a little bit about Jorge Luis Borges because um, hadn't read him before. So I think, Sarah, that's a, a good segue to talk a little bit about, Penny, do you have to make a nest right while I'm recording? Um, to talk about why this story for short story club. Like sometimes we pick a story for short story club because it just, it goes with the theme of our season or just because we feel like reading it or it's recently published in the New Yorker, but why the garden of forking paths? Well, I think maybe two main reasons. One is that we initially set out to do a postmodern semester and ended up really only reading modernist novels with, you know, they have some touches of postmodern flair, but time-wise they really are solidly modernist. And Borges is considered like one of the fathers of postmodernism. So we really wanted to end our semester with kind of this transition point from modernism to postmodernism. The other reason is I kind of insisted on this short story because there was a period of time, I want to say it was in like 2020 or yeah, I think 2020 where like every novel I read seemed to allude to the garden of forking paths. And I wish I could name these novels for you now, but that of course is completely, those details are gone from my brain, (laughs) but there were allusions to them, or I would discuss them with other readers who were familiar with Borges and, and they would point to some of the allusions to his work, especially this particular story. And I I didn't 
I, I didn't know why. I mean, I knew that I, I kind of looked up the a little bit about the story and knew kind of some of the themes. And so every time I'd see a novel playing with ideas of, of time and like multiplicity of time and kind of the, um, I don't know, certainly this word wasn't around yet, but like multiverse kind of theories, (laughs) I, I think they're often rooted in, in Borges. And so I, just have been wanting to to explore this story for a long time and I'm I'm so glad I did it it's one of those stories where I mean as I was reading I was like it it, it feels so familiar because so much is based on it right yeah and some of these ideas and lines that were probably mind-blowing at the time are just kind of like not along lines now but I was still shocked by the ending. I did not see it coming. And so I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, super fun ending. Um, okay, before we dig into the story, let's just share a little bit about that postmodernism because we talked so much about modernism with Wolf particularly. A lot of our episodes, we shared a lot about modernism. Um, and there is, like you said, Sarah, a good bit of overlap but according to our cute Venn diagram, which is available um, on Patreon with our Modernism to Postmodernism class, um, postmodernism, a couple of key characteristics, we have pastiche and intertextuality, uh, fragmentary narratives, magical realism, limited, less coherent point of view, a focus on the social forces impacted on or by humans, irony, dark humor, and satire, absurdism, and a tone of meaninglessness. Yeah. What do you, what, when we read Wolf, it was easy to be like every single one of these modernist points. And here, I think you probably could make an argument for most of these, but a few kind of stand out to me, what, what are some of the ones that stand out to you that you see Actually, in Garden of Forking Paths? Some of the things in the middle of the Venn diagram that overlap with modernism, I think, actually work even better with this story. Well, Experimentation. Because this is like the very beginning right on of the cusp. modernism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was 1941 published mm-hmm. and then again in a collection in 1944. So it's like just entering postmodernism. So we are almost like watching the transition here. So like experimentation, requiring reader interpretation. I feel like that's very much in this story. Um, A little bit of not stream of consciousness, but um, especially since we just read Wolf, I was really paying attention to there is this style in this story of the um, protagonist and narrator is going about his life and he's thinking, and then he kind of leaves a trail of thought to go do something else. Mm. Um, that felt very wolf-like to me. Um, and then like skepticism, subjectivity. So some of those middle like transition pieces really felt, um, right to me, but, from what I was reading about Borges, the magical realism piece actually 
from postmodernism comes up. He is considered to be kind of not the father of magical realism, but someone who contributed greatly to um, that genre in terms of like introducing the possibilities and opening up some of those possibilities. So, and kind of um, elevating that into the like literary canon, which I think is so mm-hmm. interesting because he's he was Ar- Argentinian, and I think you know. I, I think a lot of the discourse right now about magical realism and sort of the pushback by some writers against labeling their work that is fascinating because I think the tropes that we associate with magical realism are part of what is simply storytelling in some cultures. But I think Borges like was one of the first to kind of um, cement those into those tropes into a literary style and and canon, which is fascinating. And I would like to read more of his his work that that goes more. Not that this. I think you could certainly make an argument that there's some magical realism happening here. Yeah. But um, but it it feels. Mm, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that as like the foremost thing I notice. Yeah, definitely. Um, A little bit about Jorge, um, our new author friend here. He (laughs) mostly wrote short stories and essays and poems. I think it's always interesting in Short Story Club to read short stories by authors who like really just wrote short stories. Um, We have a few authors like that today. I'm thinking of like George Saunders specifically, who like has really devoted the bulk of his work to perfecting the medium of short story. Um, But uh, he was also a translator and we've been talking a good bit, especially in our Patreon community about works in translation. Um, And his collections, his best known collections were published in the 1940s. Um, something I found interesting, um, at least on the Wikipedia page, um, it says that his short stories explore motifs such as dreams, labyrinths, chants, infinity, archives, mirrors, fictional writers, and mythology. And you find all of that in this story. So it feels like it's just a perfect introduction to his work. Um, and he was a very philosophical writer. Um, I just, I think it's really interesting because reading this, often we get multiverse mentions in science fiction. He's kind of labeled as writing in philosophical literature and fantasy, and then having an influence on the magic realist movement. I know that fantasy can be kind of like encompassing of science fiction, but it's just Mm -hmm. interesting to me that there's that distinction in language there. Oh, that's, that's so interesting. I, I feel like we should do more exploration of fantasy and science fiction and genre conventions, because I think, you know, as things be like now, right. Our scientists are actually interested in the idea of the multiverse. So when he was writing, I I don't think that was necessarily mm-hmm. the case. So right. So it is like philosophy and maybe fantasy and magic. And now we're like, oh no, this is a scientific question. So it's fascinating just as time passes and the way 
these big questions get shifted between fields, it impacts how those questions are written about and how we interpret the the genre. And just scanning to see if there's anything else that's interesting about his life to share, but um mostly I think I it's just... interesting that he spent a lot of time in Europe. So he was mm-hmm. Argentinian, but he um lived in Europe like basically like post World War 1, right? Um Yeah. And then returned to Argentina in the early 1920s. So I I was surprised when I like when I started reading that this book was set, that the story was set in in Germany. Um or it's well, it's in Europe. <laughs> and we can discuss kind of where we where we are. But there, but it's the it's World War One-ish. And um, I guess I just wasn't expecting that. And so it was interesting to know that he was um was living and traveling a lot post-World War One around Europe. Mm-hmm. Clearly, um, that was hugely influential to the themes he was toying with. So the timeline is his father gave up practicing law because his eyesight was failing. Um, and they moved to Switzerland in 1914. And they actually, so actually during World War oh, okay. I, they were in Switzerland. So kind of observing from afar um, because they were in Switzerland. Famously and, <laughs> um So then in Switzerland, he learned French and English and philosophy and German. Um, he, when he was 10, supposedly he translated some Oscar Wilde into Spanish. I think that's fascinating. Adorable. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and then um, he went to college in Switzerland and there was still political unrest in Argentina. So then they were like, well, we'll stay in Switzerland through World War One. Um, they, after World War One, they lived in Spain um, and stayed in Europe until 1921. So um, he was definitely exposed to kind of the same like philosophical and psychological things um, that Wolf would have been reading um, that influenced some of her modernist themes. So it it makes sense that as a like as a young person, he's getting he's absorbing all of this and then taking it into the postmodern era. I just think that timeline's fascinating. So fascinating. And just really always interesting to see what different writers do with the culture and philosophies they're, they're steeped in and the way they explore them differently. Um, so should we get into this story? Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is going to be fun to walk through. Um, should we give like a little summary and then maybe explore some highlights? Yeah, I think we can kind of kind of almost go page by page too. Sure. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm curious to hear a, a summary, Sarah, especially because because I didn't you, look it up. <laughs> right, because you just like went you can, in. You can correct me. <laughs> so, uh, so it begins with like a little, almost like a framed narrative where 
um, we are told that this is a um, a deposition that that was given by a uh, somebody named Dr. Yu Sun, um, former teacher of English, and almost like a confession that was signed by him. Um, we also learn that the first two pages are are missing. So we're um, we're given right this device at the beginning where we're almost told like this is a real account, and parts of it are missing. This is very, very typical, I would say, of like metafiction, where you're told something is real, but then you are immediately told to question that, or not not even question that, but to keep the idea of what is real in your mind as you read. And then the story begins, you're totally dropped in, in the literally in the middle of a sentence that begins and or you know that starts, and I hung up the phone. And we are in this first person narrative, again, this fictitious deposition where we we learn from our narrator, who is a spy, that somebody is is after him. We know he has an important piece of information that it's about like a, a city to be bombed um, that he has not given up, but it's unclear if he's like supposed to kind of withhold that information or deliver that information. We're not we're not sure. And then he runs off, runs away. Right? He um, is being chased by a man named Madden, Captain Richard Madden, and he kind of he encounters him. He has some close calls, and then he eventually makes it to this English manor, kind of. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, and he has been telling us this whole time about his ancestor who like retired from public life in order to create a labyrinth and to become a novelist. And when he arrives at this English manor house, and from here I will say spoilers if you don't want to know how this story goes on, um, he is he meets this man named Albert, Albert somebody. And he tells, Albert tells him all about like the discoveries he made about um, Dr. Yudson's ancestor and that the labyrinth and the novel are actually one and the same. And he wrote this incredibly like mind-blowing, innovative novel um, that left room for all multiplicities of possibilities. And then from there, let's wait and talk about the very end until we go kind of page by page. Yeah, that sounds good. Good summary. Okay, thanks. I correct anything (laughs) that I uh, got wrong. (laughs) No, that's a good overview. I think we can get into some details as we discuss. Um, I love a framed work. Um, I love metafiction. So it was intriguing to me to immediately read that little opening paragraph and then be like, ooh, what do we have to discover about this? So I I thought that was fun. I think I think it is really significant to mention the ethnicity of the narrator. Um 
He is a Chinese man who's been living in England and is working as a spy for the Germans. And we don't like he refers to his like higher ups in the spy ring as the chief and the captain or no, the chief, um, the captain is Richard Madden. And we just um, know that like the chief is basically racist and this narrator's essentially trying to like prove to him that he can do the work, can save, save armies. Um, So it's like, it's never clarified why this Chinese man, um, we don't know like his background, how long he's been living in England. We don't, it's like, we don't get the specific details of why he's working for the Germans. Um, But that is, that is the, um, the basis here. And then, um, yeah, he he even I mean he he says that Germany had degraded me by making me become a spy. So yeah. you definitely get this impression that this has been like forced upon him, that his loyalties are are questioned and and his safety kind of is is in the balance if he does not perform these tasks. Yeah. Um and we'll get to it later, but then like it's significant because then he opens the door and there's this British man and he, it says he spoke in my language and they have this connection over the Chinese language. But I think there's still, there's some like interesting commentary there. So anyway, I think that's like his, his identity, his racial identity is important to the story. Um, And so just bringing that up at the top feels significant. So um, where else do we want to start, Sarah? Well, I, I mean, I, I think that, um, it, it's so interesting because the first, I would say like three pages of the story and the, like the first half and the second half feel totally different to the point where once you're in the second half, you're almost like, why was that first half even there? And then it becomes clear, but it, it really, you know, I think it's important that we're in the midst of war. It's important that like, um, that our narrator sees himself as kind of a, a, a passive man, a weak, a weak man. Um, and that he is like, feels all of this, this terror. I, I really loved some of the like the the writing as he thinks like he's he's thinking that he is certainly going to die and that and and Borges introduces us to the concept of warnings and omens and fate early on which also become important um but I I guess there there's nothing in like the first couple of pages that I feel like we need to dig into more deeply than we have. Reading it a second time, I will say there were a couple of things that stood out to me because Ooh, when you I'm know how it that. ends and you know yeah. what the story is about, then you go back and you're like, not necessarily foreshadowing, but just like some bits and pieces that connect to the theme. Um, like right on the first page, there's this interesting line that gets cut off because he like snaps back to reality. Um, 
Then I reflected that all things happen, happen to one precisely now. Century follows century, and things happen only in the present. There are countless men in the air, on land, and at sea, and all that really happens to me, and then it, like, ellipses, wanders off, and he's like, okay, but wait, now this Madden guy's after me, and I have to go. Um, yes, I, I, I loved that paragraph. I, I underlined that, too, and wrote time in the, in the right. margins, which becomes very important. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. and I think that's, like, that's our normal concept of time, right? Is like things are just happening right now and there's only me and this is this is the set t- period in history and then by the end it's like our notion of that is just shattered. Yes. Well, and I I mean I think it's fascinating that 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 reflection follows his question of was I to die now? Mm-hmm. And I mean his answer to that is like well, yes. Because everything that happens is always now. So it's playing with with words here too, where like, I mean, he does not die in this paragraph, but whenever he dies, it will be him dying now. And yeah. like that kind of uh, linguistic play is really, really fascinating. And then on the third page, um, this kind of feels like an interjection um, where he is kind of, you know, thinking about how scared he is, thinking about what's happening, um, how he's going to die, but he has to keep moving forward. There's this little interjection and he says, um, or writes, I foresee that man will resign himself each day to new abominations that soon only soldiers and bandits will be left. To them, I offer this advice. Whosoever would undertake some atrocious enterprise should act as if it were already accomplished, should impose upon himself a future as irrevocable as the past. I know, I I, I wrote oof in the questions <laughs> yeah. there. It's really, it's really dark. And, and a, a question that I have wondered for, a long time is why does so much metafiction, why is so much metafiction about war? Like Mm. think about like Kurt Vonnegut and Tim O'Brien. Like there's just so, there's so many metafictional novels that are also war novels. And again, like this short story is also a war story. And I wonder if that's about like just the incomprehensibility of, of war and and how both like all consuming it is and then just absolutely bizarre it is that life goes on as well and 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 so this this piece just that little paragraph felt even though he's he's not he doesn't talk about war in that paragraph like i think that with this idea, I mean, he says soldiers, right? That the and the idea of these new abominations, every um, coming to be. I don't know. It it's really it's really dark, and the idea that you have to like have to resign yourself wholly um, to this future. Oof, oof, exactly is what I think. 
Yeah. Well, and he is in the process of, he is carrying information. He has information that could change the course of the war in some way. There's no such thing as a small battle because people die. And um, in some way, it affects the course of history. And yeah, coming to terms with that is, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. yeah. Um, he starts then on the same page to um, talk about finding the central courtyard and like going through this labyrinth. And he, I like it go, how he goes, not for nothing. I am the great grandson of this guy who basically wrote and, you know, invented these really great labyrinths Um, and kind of gives a little bit of the history of his um, great grandfather. Um, And then uh, I guess I'm just looking at my margin notes, the next couple paragraphs I wrote, this feels so (laughs) (laughs) postmodern. Um. Yeah, I, I I noted that the, the parallel of writing and creating a maze, and of course that does come come back that they are actually one and the same. Probably because I, uh, because we live like we have read so much postmodern, like we notice that. Whereas mm-hmm. a reader at the time would maybe kind of be more have more of that surprise that these two things are 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 the same. I I loved the imagery that he creates as he imagines the the labyrinth under the trees of England I meditated on this lost and perhaps mythical labyrinth I imagined it untouched and perfect on the secret summit of some mountain I imagined it drowned under rice paddies or beneath the sea I imagined it infinite made not only of eight-sided pavilions and of twisting paths but also of rivers, provinces, and kingdoms. I thought of a maze of mazes, of a sinuous, ever-growing maze, which would take in both past and future and would somehow involve the stars. It's really beautiful. It's really beautiful. And he, you know, he gets kind of, he, he says, lost in the this imagery. And I, I loved that that shift from the beautiful imagery to the idea of being lost and how like your mind and your imagination can be this labyrinth of this garden of forking paths where it leads you from thought to thought to thought to thought kind of in this very modernist postmodern way. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. All right, so he keeps going down the road. um, And the... Just another passage that I marked um, that feels really significant as this is like before he enters the gate and meets Stephen Albert. 
He's reflecting and meditating and says, I thought that a man might be an enemy of other men, of the differing moments of other men, but never an enemy of a country, not of fireflies, words, gardens, streams, or the west wind. And that, I mean, that not only feels significant, but is also just such a um, poignant way to describe the uh, the ridiculousness of war <laughs> um, and distill it down into something um, particularly just, I don't know, just a really poignant passage. Yeah. I I wondered too about the translation of the word country. Yeah. And, and I would love to know, you know, the, the, Spanish word that Borges used. And just because, you know, country, like it's different to translate a country versus nation versus, you know, government or, um, so, so, I mean, there's so much within that particular term, especially how, you know, it says country and then colon, not a fireflies, words, gardens, streams, or the West wind, which are not the words you would typically think would follow country country right yeah and these are kind of the definitions of it so um I, I I had so many questions about that and just feel like I'm going to be thinking about that quote for a long time so the part of this story that feels magical to me is the fact that our protagonist goes through this gate and opens it up and um Stephen Albert is there and speaks to him in Chinese, knows the work of his great-grandfather, um, and turns out he studied his great-grandfather's work and has a lot to reveal about it. And that's the part that feels magical. It's like, of all the people in all the world, we end up meeting at this moment. Mm-hmm. And he leads him, he tells him, you know, he says, you're here to see the garden, the garden of forking paths. And that's, of course, our, our title. Um, and I love the title. I mean, it could, this could be called so many things. Like, it's interesting that it's not, you know, called some sort of like that labyrinth isn't in yeah. the title, right? And um, and he leads him into a library, I love, filled with books from both East and West. So this all-encompassing library. He describes Stephen Albert, something of the priest, something of the sailor. So this this kind of like juxtaposition, but also both both professions that kind of like lead you on a journey, but one spiritual, one physical. Um, and he's a sinologist, which I didn't look up. But I think as a study, like someone who studies symbols and signs and words, is that right? Um, he studies Chinese culture. Okay. I thought signs and symbols as well, and I did look it up. Let me grab it again. Um, Sinology. Uh, so this is a person who is an expert in Chinese language studies and literature oh, and history. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you looked it up. I was um, just like, I know that word. No. <laughs> Sino is derived from the Latin sine or sinem, the Chinese. Um, that origin's kind of debatable, but that's why it's called sinology. 
Um, it's an academic discipline. So yeah, just like all encompassing, I guess if, if you were going to take a course through a college, it would just be called like Chinese studies, but yeah. Um, and so he, he tells him, right, this, that he had been a missionary before he entered his academic field and, and they, they sit down and he starts telling our narrator about his grandfather and how he, he has his, his writings and, and it's a book that is a shapeless mass of contradictory rough drafts, or at least that's what he thought at first. And then he gets into telling him, he's, he points, I I thought this part was funny. He points to kind of this cabinet and he says, here is the labyrinth. And he says, a tiny labyrinth? (laughs) (laughs) An ivory labyrinth? A tiny labyrinth? Um, And he says, no, a symbolic labyrinth an invisible labyrinth of time the book and the labyrinth were one and the same and um and then like you know there there are paragraphs devoted to kind of this explanation that i just feel like i want people to go read because the way boris unfolds these ideas is so multi-layered like i mean we we could give and we have kind of the explanation of this in just a couple sentences right that that the book it contains all, all different possibilities and you can read it infinitely but the but the way he takes you on that exploration is really interesting and beautifully written i love then at the end of this explanation albert hands the protagonist um, a letter in his great grandfather's calligraphy. Um, and it just like, it's significant. This British man is handing over the original letter that really should belong to this Chinese man because it's his family members. Um, but he, uh, says, I read the words which a man of my own blood had written with a small brush. I leave to various future times, but not to all my garden of forking pets. Yeah, wh- what did you make of that? Um, I don't know that I made anything of it yet, but the following page goes into more detail about like specifically how the novel is a labyrinth. Um, where Albert goes on to explain, like, before I discovered this letter, I was questioning how a book could be infinite. And he thought of 1001 Nights, where it's like a circular cyclical story. Um, But then it didn't apply to the actual book, where everything was like contradicting. Um, And so then there's this passage um, and Albert says, uh, I leave to various future times, but not to all my garden of forking paths. Um, I understood the garden of forking paths was the chaotic novel itself. The phrase to various future times, but not to all suggested the image of bifurcating in time, not in space. 
In all fiction, when a man is faced with alternatives, he chooses one at the expense of the others. But in this labyrinth of a book, he simultaneously chooses all of them and creates various futures, various times um, that branch out and bifurcate into other times. And that's like to a reader now, I'm like, okay, well, that's sounds very much like when they're uh, describing a wrinkle in time. That sounds like the Marvel multiverse. That sounds like all of these things in our pop culture that we understand, but I can't imagine how mind-blowing it would have been to read this in 1941. Yeah, it's it's so fascinating. And I love the like, you know, there's to me also this meta kind of commentary on being a novelist and how the choice or, you know, any sort of writer, the choices that the writer makes negates all of the others. But in this new kind of fiction, you can explore multiple or both or, or, I mean, not all because we don't actually get this infinite novel. <laughs> it's hard to conceptualize right. of what that really is. But it's it's like he's he's introducing us to what kind of writing he is interested in exploring through through this. I also love the way he describes the Garden of Forking Paths as a picture incomplete yet not false, which becomes I think an important um, aspect of postmodernism that the a, someone's perspective is is limited. Any story is limited. You can't know the whole story, but that doesn't negate the fact that the story contains truth. And I just I thought that was just such a precise and perfect little phrase: incomplete yet not false. That's fascinating to me. um let's see so then they discuss like their kind of reality like like Stephen Albert starts telling him like you know we there exist all of these versions of of life of reality we don't live in most of them right there are ones where you're there and I'm not there or I'm not there and I don't know what I just, I think I just repeated myself, <laughs> but there are all these different versions and, and, you know, he, he says, well, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to you in all of them. And, and Stephen Albert's like, no, certainly not. And some of them were enemies, which connects back to the, the quote that you loved Chelsea and that you shared on our, our Instagram, um, and at that point where he says, and in one of them, I am your enemy, I did have a little bit of a like, hmm, but we were so close to the end of the story. I didn't think, I didn't really consider what he might be alluding to there. <laughs> hmm. Um, well, should we talk about the ending? Yes. Yes. So, okay. you know, um, um so down comes there's this whole explanation right (laughs) um then all of a sudden our narrator looks out down the path and here comes captain richard madden 
who we know is after this spy and wants to kill him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, the future exists now, but I am your friend. Can I take another look at the letter? And Albert goes up and he goes to the writing cabinet and the protagonist takes out his revolver and shoots Albert in the back, kills him instantaneously. Madden comes in, arrests the spy, captures him. He's been condemned to hang, of course, for, I, I mean, I guess treason or, you know, just being a spy. Um, but it turns out that this spy killed Albert because the secret um, that he was carrying for the um, Germans was the name of the city to be attacked. And so um, in the English newspapers, they were trying to solve the riddle of the murder of the learned sinologist Stephen Albert. Um, and the chief, because of this in the newspaper, knew that um, the name of the city that was to be attacked was called Albert. And so because he couldn't, it says, um, my problem was to shout with my feeble voice above the tumult of war. A couple of times through the story, he mentions his like timorous, soft, like can't shout it, his human voice. Mm -hmm. Um, There was no other course open than to kill someone of that name. Um, But the final line of the story is he does not know for no one can of my infinite penitence and sickness of the heart. So he did the job. He communicated his, um, he communicated the secret, but in, in doing that, he like opened up this other course of history. Mm-hmm. It's so, it leaves you with so many questions because as, as he's said, he's going to be condemned to hang. And so you wonder about the why, right? Like he says that he, you know, he doesn't have any love for the chief. He says that he's been kind of strong-armed into being a a spy. And he knows he's going to hang anyways. And yet he still feels like that's his last act needs to be this this shout. And and I mean I think it it relates to the passage that we talked about of like, you know, making your future as unchangeable as your past. Like I think he is so committed to this. But that kind of calls into question some of the themes of the the story or it or it actually or maybe not calls into question, but it complicates the idea of the garden of forking paths because that makes it seem like there are infinite choices. But on the other hand, it's this idea that, you know, the now you are in is your now and it's always going to be that. And while there are other possibilities happening simultaneously, you can't escape the one that you are in. It's, it's very, I mean, it is, it's very philosophical and And very, sorry, go go ahead. ahead. No, you go. 
Well, I was, I was going to say it's like you, you're in this intense opening of the story and then you get lost in the labyrinth, right? And you go on this metaphysical journey and everything feels a little bit magical and philosophical. And then it's like the ending is jerking you back into reality. And then, I mean, only because I went back and read it a second time, that's the best thing about a short story like this is then you pick up on the subtleties and the hints that something's going to happen. So going back through the second time, um, let me see. Um, this is on page five. Um, they sit down and the protagonist calculates that Richard Madden could not arrive in less than an hour. My irrevocable decision could wait. And then he lets Albert continue. And then a little bit later on, um, there is, um, I felt this like pull, this divergent parallel converging, um, and I'm feeling agitated. And so just like these hints, (laughs) um, that the protagonist is waiting for something to happen and it's almost like he's just... So you're left with all these questions like, is he actually interested in what Albert has to say about his ancestor? Is he buying into that at all? Or is he just humoring him so he can wait to kill him? Mm -hmm. Was this chance, like I said, the part that feels magical at first when you read it is that he ends up meeting this man who knew his grandfather or great grandfather but if he was going to kill someone with the name, that doesn't, that's, is, was that chance? It seems like then he would have found him on purpose because of the name. So right. all of these other questions that come up then when you go back and think about the beginning of the story, mm-hmm. which is the best kind of short story. Yeah. I, I think like, like you said, I mean, obviously we, we, we know that he was kind of looking for a, needed a man named Albert. And in that last paragraph where he where it says the learned sinologist Stephen Albert by the unknown Yud son, I think, right, we then know that Stephen Albert was not unknown. The killer mm-hmm. was unknown. The the person murdered was somebody of some some prominence. So yes, he did he did know it and it, it and I I we then wonder, like, did he know about his connection to his grandfather? Like, all of the, these things are so, so puzzling. And they matter and they don't because I think that's part of the, like, postmodern piece is this just sort of um, oh, meaninglessness in a, in, to an extent, right? This kind of absurdism that – in this in this life, Stephen Albert was killed just because of the last name he happens to carry. Um, but in others, it could be totally different. Did you catch the footnote at the very end of the story too? Yes. I think we should talk about that a little bit because that ha- has to have some significance. So... Um, in the first 
paragraph of this letter that we know the narrator is writing kind of like accounting for what happened before he gets hanged. Um, It says, Captain Richard Madden, Madden in Victor Runeberg's office, meant the end of all our work. And though this seemed a secondary matter, or should have seemed so to me, of our lives also, his being there meant that Runeberg had been arrested or murdered. Okay. Then the footnote at the very end of the story, which goes back to that first page, a malicious and outlandish statement. In point of fact, Captain Richard Madden had been attacked by the Prussian spy Hans Robiner, alias Victor Runeberg, who drew an automatic pistol when Madden appeared with orders for the spy's arrest. Madden, in self-defense, had inflicted wounds of which the spy later died. Note by the manuscript editor. What are we supposed to make of that layer then, Sarah? Because in a short story, obviously, like, something like that really matters. Well, I I think that this, I mean, first, this is just, this is so, like, post postmodern, right? To make you, you know this is fiction, but then you question the fiction. I was reading a Goodreads review of a book, a metafictional book that I read recently where someone wrote like, I hated this book. I ne- I just kept screaming at the book. This isn't real. This is fiction. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That is the point of this book. <laughs> and I think that that's like the point of footnotes. What One point is to make you say, okay, wait, but why does that even matter? Like whose story is quote unquote true? Because neither of these stories is true. This is all fiction. Mm-hmm. So it it calls it brings those questions to mind which is very much the point. But I also think that maybe there's this layer of the way history gets written down and the choices made by those writers and how that is almost its own garden of forking paths, right? That the way that you record the history it can lead to you know, he he says that the past is is immutable, but it's it's not because of the way that it's transcribed and and documented, and so I I think it, it reminds me a bit of um, the epilogue of The Handmaid's Tale, which I won't spoil, um, but where you then question again, like the, the all these ideas of of history and fact and storytelling, and you can learn something that's not true and that's your reality so this i mean this spy as he's writing the letter could have gotten this information about richard madden and clearly someone corrected it right or provided an alternate story which story is less true to which person um you can this is st- where, you know, your brain starts to explode when you're thinking about this, like, metaphysical and philosophical multiverse stuff. I think when we think of the multiverse or this labyrinth, the Garden of Forking Paths, we think, like, oh, well, everyone's living in these alternate realities. But we are. (laughs) Because each person that I know in my life has a different perception of me. Who gets to say the true perception of who I am? 
So there are many Chelsea's. Mm-hmm. And there are many realities based on the way people perceive me. We're all perceiving each other differently. I don't know that this story necessarily goes so far as to like make that statement. Um, but in modernism and in postmodernism, that sort of nature of everyone having an individual perception of time and reality of there not necessarily being one absolute truth is so core to the storytelling. Um, yeah, it's fascinating. All right. Any other things you want to touch on with the story it, itself? We're not going to do official pairings, but I feel like we have kind of thrown out some some things that connect and, and maybe we have other recommendations. Yeah. I mean, we mentioned A Wrinkle in Time, Kurt Vonnegut, Slaughterhouse-Five, Tim O'Brien and the things they carried. I think those are all great um, recommendations here. Um I was trying to think of any other surrealist writers or short stories, but Sarah, I feel like that's more your area of expertise. Do you have any other books or stories to recommend? Well, I I I remembered I think maybe the origin novel of like where I started wanting to read this story. And I I believe it was A Tale for the Time Being by Ruth Ozeki. And um when we were talking about the idea of now in a tale for the time being the main character's name is now mm. and she calls herself a time being um a being who right is acted upon by time um and there's tons of metafiction in that it there there is a through line of a um of a war story but it is one of the metafictional novels that I've read that is not primarily a war novel. Um, it's fantastic. I really, really loved it. And I I think, if I'm remembering right, it, right, I think there might be some kind of direct allusions to the Garden of Forking Paths in a tale for the time being. This feels like the kind of reading experience, the kind of story where now every time travel novel or every sort of time and alternate reality novel that I read, I will be thinking of this story and noticing those connections more now that I've read it. And now that I kind of have the Garden of Forking Paths in in my vocabulary a little bit more. Yeah, I I agree. And I think for you and I, that is something we both love about reading classics. I I know for some readers, probably not people who listen to our podcast, <laughs> but but I know <laughs> for for some like reading a classic and seeing things that are so typical now can feel like okay, I I've read this before. But I love seeing some of the origins of of what is so part of our vernacular and our culture and the way we think now, it's just, to me, completely fascinating. And it does make me want to read more Borges and 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 read some of the authors who directly have cited him as, um, as an influence. I think like Calvino and um, Paul Oster, who I've never read and have, have wanted to. Um, so we'll see. We'll see if that happens for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, we will continue discussing this short story in our short story club thread on Discord, which is a perk of our Patreon community. So if you are a patron and you haven't connected Discord yet, you should if you need instructions. I'm pretty sure we have them pinned on our Patreon page, but you can also send us a message and we'll help you out. Um, and we would love to hear more about what you think of this short story, whether you're just commenting on our post on Instagram or hopping in that short story club thread, we would love to hear from you. So thank you, especially to our classics club, our Patreon community for making this episode and all of our content possible. A special thank you to our Novel Pairings producers, Emma, Dilma, Kathy, Amy, Jody, and Diane, whose generous support sustains our show. And as always, thanks to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. We'll be back in January with our special end-of-year superlatives episode. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book. 